genre. And welcome to the Protagonist Podcast, where each week we look at a great character in a great story. I'm Joe Dorowski, and this week we're discussing Amelia Peabody, Emerson, and Ramses from the novel The Lion in the Valley. And joining me is producer Andrew. Welcome, Andrew. Hello. Very glad. Now, I do want to clear up a tiny bit of confusion that may stem from from your introduction of the characters. Yeah. That is Amelia Peabody Emerson, as well as her uh, husband, who just goes by his surname. Emerson. Right, yes. <laughs> and, and I couldn't really give him like the first last name treatment because he's just called Emerson. And similarly, their son is not named Ramses, but he's just called Ramses. <laughs> yeah. And not not a pharaoh or anything. He's just called Ramses. You know, that's just their son. Uh, in uh, what years are we looking at? 1800s, uh, Egypt? Uh, late 1800s, right, right near the turn of the century. I think this is like 1896 or so. Okay, yeah. Um, so yeah, the, uh, this is, uh, The Lion in the Valley is the fourth book in the Amelia Peabody series of mystery novels, and it was published in 1986, and it was written by Elizabeth Peters, and this is the second book in the series that we are covering. Uh, a little over a year ago, we talked about, um, Crocodile on Sandbank, which is the first in the Amelia Peabody mystery novel series. So it's it was fun to go and revisit uh, the characters that you and I both very much enjoyed. You were the uh, main person or main guest, right? I, I, it feels weird to call you a guest because you're always here. Uh, but you were the other person discussing. <laughs> yeah, but that was. Uh, yeah, that was um, relatively early in, in the cycle of um, after Todd had had moved on um, in his podcasting. And I I think it was one of the first ones where I was just the guest. I think you, you had had a lot of people um, come in and, and guest and co-host and all of that. And I think this was one of the times when it was, was early on just the two of us. And, yeah. and even since then, you, you typically still have brought in um, additional people and, and I, I come in occasionally, um, but I really enjoyed it and, um, and have continued with the series um, since then. So after we did that first book in the series, I think I listened to, I definitely listened to the next two. And I think I may have started this one, but then something happened and I lost my hold or I lost the file from the library because I was getting these ones through the library's um, website where you can get audiobooks. And I don't think I ever went back and finished it. So when you said, I really like flying in the valley, it's when Ramsey is a little bit older uh, and you wanted us to jump ahead and do, do that one. I was like, oh, great. I think that's where I was at. <laughs> and it was just um, so, so nice to go and revisit these characters uh, in, in this novel. And I think, I think nice because of the advancement of people's age and, and character development and all those sorts of things. Um, not that Amelia or Emerson make massive changes, um, even after becoming parents um, from, from the first book. Uh, but having Ramsey's in here is a very different additional dynamic. Yes. Um, and this is the story of uh, Amelia and Emerson leading a, uh, what do they call it? Uh it's an uh, excavation an a dig outing. excavation yeah uh at a pyramid in egypt and like we said in the late 1800s um and while they're doing this uh they get wrapped into this net uh of of 
criminal intrigue that Amelia is certain is the work of the master criminal, as she refers to him over and over in the novel in a way that uh, Emerson is definitely rolling his eyes at every time she says that, because he does not believe there is some singular mind that is behind all the chaos that they're seeing around them. Uh, and then it builds to a, uh, you know, a conclusion as we find out whether or not there was a master criminal. Um, a little bit of trivia about this and I just went and copied a lot of the trivia over from the first time we talked about an Amelia Peabody novel. I'm not going to, you know, read it verbatim, but this is hitting a lot of the high notes. Um, so Elizabeth Peters, the author, that is her one of the pen names of Barbara Louise Mertz. Um, she also published under the name Barbara Louise Mertz and Barbara Michaels, uh, and she wrote over 70 books. And uh, she has a PhD in Egyptology, and so she knew the material that she, very well uh, that she was, uh, you know, layering with the fiction, but she, she knew the history of Egypt uh, and, and the kind of excavation work that was being done. Uh, she, she knew. Um, and uh, she has two children who were named Elizabeth and Peter, uh, which is the origin of her uh, pen name, Elizabeth Peters. Uh, and um, I will just say that she won all the awards for mystery writing and then also had several awards for mystery writing writing uh, named for her. And one reason why we said it was just kind of nice to go and revisit these is primarily she wrote in what is called the, the cozy mystery subgenre, which is um, usually an amateur detective solving a murder in which there is not gratuitous violence uh, or, or much sex. Uh, it's certainly in, in their marriage, there's, the implication that they are a very, very loving husband and wife, uh, but nothing explicit ever appears on the page of these Amelia Peabody novels, at least the four that I've I've listened to are, well, uh, the page or the audiobook. Yeah. In this case. Yeah, I would say that is accurate. Like you, you have never come across so much definitive, but very not explicit sex, sex going on in a book. Oh, yeah, like, so many of the scenes ended with, uh, like, because these are supposedly uh, Amelia uh, Peabody's memoirs. It ended, and then reader, and then just applies like we had what uh, Judge John Hodgman on his podcast often refers to as um, consenting adult hugging and kissing time, <laughs> right? And, and and then you move on to the next. Yeah, scene. so so yeah, it it tends to be one of the most common buttons at the end of a scene is like, and the conversation ended because. We were being romantic. Yeah. And and so I will transition into the next relevant stage of the story. Yeah. Um, so, Andrew, you're going to have the summary uh, for this one. But before you read that to us, we would like to thank you listeners for downloading this episode. And we also want to thank those of you uh, who support us on Patreon. If you would like to support us financially, we invite you to go to patreon.com slash protagonist and support our show with at least a dollar per month. All supporters on Patreon at any level receive access to our special quickcasts, which are shorter episodes in, wh in which we talk about uh, whatever new media we've been consuming. And also all patrons who support us with $5 per month or more get to choose a topic for us to discuss. Now, Andrew, why don't you give us the summary of, let me just double check, The Lion in the Valley. I was like, The Lion in, I almost said The Lion in Winter, which is the... a different thing entirely. <laughs> um, yeah, and the titles of these the podcast, books... Uh... But... That is that is a valid point. Um, and the titles of all the all of the books in the Amelia Peabody series are references, I believe, to Egyptian poetry, like they're actual um, verses from Egyptian archaeological discovery and things like that. Um, and so this is this is one of those. And so they all have these. Um, I mean, they tend to be animal theming 
elements and it's just this line taken almost out of context so it is kind of hard to remember the titles of the books and it, it does not feel closely related to the plot of, of the novels uh at least from the ones that i'm remembering where it's it's it, like the the titles themselves are a bit generic uh and, and a little like mm-hmm. you could copy and paste some of these titles between uh the, these stories yeah and she will usually create reference to them somehow mm-hmm. but they're not yeah they're not terribly um direct in their relation to the narrative that's going on yeah um and so just as the brief introduction characters that are going to be central to this story that have been introduced in previous stories, right? So where everyone's on the same page, Amelia Peabody Emerson, who will be called Amelia throughout most of the, the um, summary is the narrator. Um, it's in first person. She's an archeologist and an amateur detective um, who is very convinced that she is the most skilled amateur detective out there. <laughs> and, and also the most skilled archeologist, right? <laughs> well, yes. <laughs> Um, so her husband is Radcliffe Emerson, who just goes by Emerson always. He is never referred to by his first name. Um, and he is, is the professional Egyptologist. He's a professor, professor of Egyptology. And he is, uh, as is pointed out constantly, a physical specimen. Uh, yeah, no, I think, that's uh, <laughs> <laughs> um, their son Ramses, uh, is eight years old. He is precocious in the extreme and something of a troublemaker yes uh, i mean i was gonna talk some about this after the summary but he's he is so precocious in some ways you almost just have to say okay this is just a genre of story where there is an unbelievably precocious child and you accept that as a facet of the story the way same way that for a fantasy novel you accept that magic is part of the story or a sci-fi novel you accept that aliens exist in this story and then you just move on uh because there's no human child of this age that is that would talk or act like ramses does yeah he like you do have to that is i mean possibly the greatest extension of disbelief Mm -hmm. um in this is just accepting ramses for what he is yeah (laughs) um and then you have the master criminal who is the ringleader of an illegal antiquities trade in Egypt. And he is the enemy of the Emersons. Um, if and so exists. just so you're aware, because a lot of this, what? If he exists. <laughs> yeah. Um, and so as a kind of a summary of the previous novel, because there is so much tying into it um, in the previous novel, the Emerson family, thwarted the master criminal in his attempts to to steal some artifacts from a tomb he did make off with with some items from a local christian village but he was thwarted uh in his tomb robbing overall he did nearly kill the emersons and they have vowed to find him and bring him to justice um there is admittedly some debate about whether he really really exists but they're pretty sure he's a real guy and they do they do expect to encounter him at some point all right so into the actual novel that we're dealing with, Lion in the Valley. The Emerson family arrives in Cairo before another season of excavation at, of nearby pyramids. Before they leave for the dig, they spend a few days in a popular hotel in Cairo. While there, they interact with a scoundrel named Kalenichev, with whom they had dealings in the previous novel. He asks that they leave him alone so he can run away from the master criminal. And he also has a female companion named Enid Devenham, who Amelia plans to warn away from the scoundrel. 
one evening, they go out on a nighttime excursion to a tourist attraction at the famous pyramids in Cairo, not the ones they'll be excavating later. Pyramids become confusing in, in some of the stories because it's Egypt. Um, but while they are at the tourist pyramids, uh, Ramses is briefly abducted, but quickly rescued by a man who calms, calls himself Nemo. Nemo is an Englishman who has been living as a beggar in Cairo for some time. The Emersons hire Nemo to watch and protect Ramses for the season. Ramses gets in a lot of trouble, so he is hired as a bodyguard primarily. <laughs> Just <laughs> keep him safe. Uh in that same night, Kalena Chev, the scoundrel who they met earlier, is found murdered in the room of his female companion in the hotel. Enid Devenham is nowhere to be found. The Emersons travel to their excavation site. While setting things up, Amelia learns a few details about Nemo, including the fact that he was part of the British military in Egypt and fell into disgrace and became a beggar. Emerson finds a second campsite where he plans for himself and Amelia to spend most nights so that they can have some privacy away from the camp. As they unpack additional items at the dig, they find a mysterious package that contains items that the MC stole from the Christian village in the previous book. Emerson believes that this indicates attention from the MC towards Amelia, and he does feel jealousy at this. He's also jealous of Amelia constantly calling him a genius of crime. <laughs> it's either the master criminal or that genius of crime, <laughs> neither of which are terms that Emerson is fond of. Emerson and Amelia find a woman named Enid Marshall, whom Amelia immediately recognizes as Enid Devenham. Like this, this farce lasts three seconds in the book. So it's, it's Enid Devenham. Yeah. Um, she says that she did not kill Kalinichev and that she snuck away from the hotel to avoid excess scandal. But that does make her really suspicious um, fleeing the scene of a crime. She sought out the Emersons for help solving crime and protecting herself. Amelia speaks to Nemo and learns that the master criminal is called Sethos in the criminal circles. Amelia goes to Cairo and speaks to the police. She also meets a loud and large American woman and a detective named Tobias Gregson. The detective says that he will seek her help if he finds anything interesting about the murder investigation. Amelia also hears about someone referring to themselves as Enid's fiance. This is something she did not know about, and so she's very uh, surprised by this. Uh, she receives a gift of flowers, and she sees somebody who she is sure must be Nemo. Somehow, he made it to Cairo from camp. When she returns to the camp, it becomes clear that the, the flowers are from Sethos, and that Emerson is more and more jealous of this. Um, she also learns that Nemo definitely was not in Cairo. He was at camp the whole time. The next day, the camp is visited by some young men on horseback. This party includes Ronald Fraser, who is the person that Amelia mistook as Nemo the previous day in Cairo. Uh, they also meet Viscount Everly, who uh, is, is a very vapid um, young <laughs> British guy. And he allows Ramses to ride his horse while, while Ramses is riding the horse. A gunshot goes off, the horse bolts, and uh, fortunately, Nemo is able to rescue Ramses before he and the horse tumble off of a cliffside. It's a, it's, a, it's a very intense horseback riding action scene. The The young men leave and later on Enid reveals that she hid some personal items in the desert when she was uh, coming towards to the Emersons. Amelia disguises herself as Enid and goes to the retrieve the items. She is secretly hoping that she will be attacked by one of Sethos's men so that she can return so she can uh, capture him, bring him back to camp and interrogate him. A rock slide at the pyramid distracts her and she is attacked by one of Sethos's men. Uh, Nemo fights the attacker. He had, he had been following her 
fights off the attacker. He and Amelia subdue him, but the attacker ingests some poison rather than be captured. Um, you know, classic, classic villain henchman. Yes. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so Amelia and, and Nemo return to camp uh, to take care of Nemo's wounds. She, uh, some men from camp are sent to retrieve the body. But by the time they arrive at the scene, the body is gone. No evidence of him, uh, uh, of his body. Right. He, he's been whisked away somehow. Enid sees Nemo injured and slaps him. And Nemo is revealed to be Donald Fraser, not Ronald Fraser. Donald Fraser, the older brother of Ronald. And over the course of several conversations that don't all happen at this point in the novel, but I'm summarizing them. uh, It's revealed that Donald uh, is taking the blame for something that Ronald did. Ronald sucks and Donald is noble, but kind of dumb about it. And he keeps taking the blame for him. (laughs) That is a good description of so much that we learn about these brothers. Yep. That's that's about it. (laughs) Like that's, that's the baseline that you need to have for it. Um, Another day, the or it might be later that same day, time gets compressed. Um, the large and loud American woman that Amelia met in Cairo comes to the camp briefly as a tourist. Her name is Mrs. Axehammer. Amelia and Emerson later on go to the Christian village to return the items that Sethos had stolen and then returned to them. They also question the priest. Uh, who was a prisoner uh, of Sethos during the last book. They learn a little about the room where he was kept, but can't identify its exact location. Um, the windows were, were kept closed and all that sort of stuff, but they suspect it's in Cairo. Uh, when they return to the dig site, they learn that Ramses ran off and was nearly shot in the head. This is not the craziest thing that Ramses has done. I skipped a whole thing about being trapped in a pyramid. Yeah. Yeah. Far from the craziest. <laughs> um, Ronald, not Donald, Ronald, the, the, the one who sucks, uh, he comes to camp and he's looking for Enid. He expresses affection for her and says that he wishes he could find Donald to reconcile things. He, he shares a coded message for Donald to meet him at a nearby location in the morning. In the morning, Donald goes to meet Ronald. Amelia follows him. Enid follows Amelia. Emerson follows Enid. Someone shoots at Donald and Amelia. Donald is wounded, but not severely. In the heat of the moment, Enid and Donald do confess their love for one another. It's much more intense in the book. That was a, a tight summary of that sequence. Yeah. You got to trim a lot. Yes. Um, Amelia and Emerson go to Cairo so they can talk to the police. Um, Emerson also leaves to speak to some of his contacts in the shadier part of the city. Amelia meets with Detective Gregson. Um, he's found out some information and he he plans to lead her to meet with one of his contacts, but they are interrupted in this effort. So they they separate, unable to meet the, the contact. Uh, when Emerson and Amelia return to the camp, uh, Ramses is missing. He left a note written in hieroglyphics, in hieroglyphics saying that he was going to the Christian village to try and learn more from the priest. So they follow him there. This is like a like a three hour donkey ride <laughs> to get there. They follow him there. They find him uh, and he is trying to narrow down the location of the safe house by repeating imitations of the Muslim call to prayer that are heard throughout the city of Cairo um, in, in different mosques. It's, it's going to sound slightly differently depending on who is um, emitting the call to prayer. And so Ramses is replicating these and asking the priest, which ones sound closest to the ones that you were hearing. But his goal is to pinpoint the location based on that. He believes that he has it narrowed down to less than a square mile. In Cairo. Um, Based on his ability to do impressions. 
Yes. Yeah, he's saying, you know, okay, well, how loud was this one? And then he does an impression of it. Um, they return to camp. And, and so at camp, Donald and Enid plan to be married as soon as possible. Emerson, Amelia, and Enid go to the second campsite for the night. Uh, in the morning, Amelia trips over the body of Ronald Fraser as she exits the tent. So this is the second dead body in this book. Well, actually third, um, but second murder that they're really trying to address. Yeah. Um, Donald shows up. He finds his brother and, um, and this is because he had innocently spent the night nearby uh, to be close to Enid. Ramsey starts riding up to the campsite to warn them that the police are on their way. They've received a tip about the murder of Ronald and have come to arrest Donald, which they do promptly. This is the task they, they immediately do, right? The police are right behind Ramsey's. He gives them like three minutes notice um, that the police are coming. Enid goes with Donald and the police uh, to Cairo. Amelia, Emerson, and Ramses all go to Cairo in order to help Donald with the police and to support Enid. In the train, they debate the mystery and all su- and they each suggest that Sethos is somebody that they have known in disguise. Ramses says that he is Detective Gregson. Amelia's th- Amelia thinks that he is Mrs. Axehammer, and Emerson thinks he is Viscount Everly. When they get to the hotel, they meet with Enid. Emerson receives a letter from Gregson uh, to telling him to meet him at a cafe. And so he takes Ramsey's with him to meet with the detective and, and hopefully go find a contact about something that's going on. Amelia stays at the hotel with Enid. Uh, Viscount Everly arrives at the hotel and speaks to them about Ronald. During the conversation, Amelia loses consciousness. She wakes up in the exact same room that was described by the priest. So she recognizes that she has been captured by Sethos and is his prisoner. Um, So she tries and fails to escape. Sethos speaks to her. uh, He comes in, introduces himself, talks about uh, all of his, his various machinations over the last several days, including the fact that he killed Ronald because Ronald had tried to shoot Donald while Amelia was there. And that put Amelia in danger. Uh, Sethos reveals that he is romantically devoted to Amelia and would uh, would kill anyone that put her in danger. He insists that uh, she change into some prepared garments, which at this time allows her to uh, push a signal outside of the window, hoping that uh, Ramses and Emerson will find that he uh, Sethos also reveals that he was all three of the uh, suspects. She's, she's waving one of her, like her, is it her belt? I can't remember what it is exactly. It's, um, I've never understood exactly what it is. I should probably look it up. She calls it a flannel belt. It's something that's worn underneath their clothing and it's help. It, it, she uses it to help prevent sickness of some kind. Okay. But, but some, Um, something that would catch the eye of someone walking down the street is now flapping outside of her window. Yeah. Especially, especially Emerson. Um, he would know, um, and and Sethos also reveals that he was all three of the people that each of the Emersons suspected. So he was Mrs. Axhammer, he was Tobias Gregson, and he was Viscount Everly. He was all of them in disguise. Um, Emerson breaks into the room. Uh, he has a torn short, a shirt and a sword in each hand. He fights Sethos. Mostly he ditches the sword and he uses a broken bottle and has some cloth wrapped around his arm for protection. And he's come to the scene with Ramses and the police. Uh, ultimately, Sethos barely escapes and his safe house is ransacked by the police. Sethos eventually leaves a note at the at the campsite saying that he plans to leave Egypt forever and that the Emersons will never see him again. 
And that's the end. Good job, Andrew. Uh, there's lots of twists and turns. I think you navigated them well in that summary. Um. And also for a mystery novel, the mystery of who killed Kalinichev, right? The first murder in the book. Not an especially important facet of this novel. No. It really becomes all about the master criminal and and what's going on here. Yeah, I was thinking about that as I was like, um, after I finished it, like the structure of the book, I, I never felt lost, nor did I feel like it, it was a weak structure. It just felt like an irregular structure. Like the inciting incidents, incident uh, doesn't really launch them onto this adventure. <laughs> like they're, they're, they're in Egypt already. They're going out to the pyramids already. This murder that takes place at the hotel they're staying at doesn't really disrupt their plans. It just becomes almost... Mm-hmm. Um, uh, kind of a footnote in, in the story um and it's a when it when it first happens it sounds like this is going to be you know the big the big thing and it it doesn't really end up that way yeah and i think some of it is is the fact it's like well this guy that we actually didn't like and don't mind seeing dead is dead and it's like well we're not super broken up about that so we don't feel a, they're not compelled to solve that mystery for any particular reason um but they do get involved because of um, Enid and Donald to some degree. But again, it's not really about solving the crime. It's more about just figuring out what is going on um, overall with, with, with everybody. Um, And, and also like Amelia very early on, you know, it's within the first, the first third of the book immediately says, I know exactly who did it. I just don't know who it is. Right. I know it was the master criminal, but I don't know who he is. Yeah, and, and so much about her obsession with the idea of like this being the master criminal and the way she talks about it, and it drives Emerson nuts. Like I was visualizing the an actor's performance, which again, it kind of blows my mind that there's never been an adaptation of any of these uh, books into uh, film or or miniseries um, or anything. Because I some of the the traits that get described, or even the tone of delivery, and some of that is. I'm sure due to the uh, performance of the uh, uh, um, audiobook narrator, but like I could see facial expressions so well um, in, in these, uh, in these characters as they're, they're interacting together. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, and the character interactions is, I think one of the strong, strong features of, um, of the series and, and of this book is, I mean, if we were go to go down the list, it's very easy to start to describe Amelia or Emerson or Ramses or even, you know, the more minor characters you have Donald and Enid and Ronald. And it's like, okay, like Ronald and Donald are described as being very visually similar, but they don't seem to have a ton of similarities in like characterization, right? As soon as you are dealing with like, okay, but like describe how they behave. You you have such a clear picture of differences. Yeah, and, and it's interesting because so the good brother when we meet him is you know the beggar that is trying to get over a drug addiction, so, well, sort of trying to get over a drug ad- addiction, um, but he, I, I think you still sense that, um, th- there, there's a goodness at his core, um, within that, uh, and that w- Amelia's like, and Emerson's choice to trust their son with with him, it feels like the right right decision because of something about how the character is described and presented to us as readers. Like we, we understand um, that this is going to be one of the good people who has flaws. Yes. That need to be overcome. Yes. But is, is one of the good guys. 
Um, whereas when, yeah, you, you, Oh, go ahead. It's so interesting. Uh, yeah. It's super interesting how you describe it. Like immediately when, at least when listening to the book, and I assume it would be similar when reading it, like you're introduced to him. Um, it technically you're introduced to him just as a beggar on the street, but then in his first interaction, you immediately get like this quiet, um, nobility or heroism and it immediately invites trust even though they also immediately say this guy's addicted to opium by the way mm-hmm. like this guy smokes opium he he's a drug addict he's a beggar he's on the streets like these are things that in in a structure of a character you would say not trustworthy but she also introduces his behavior immediately as heroic and noble yeah and i think it doesn't Amelia like briefly wonder if he could be a link into the master criminals organization like as someone who is so low on the social ladder and as a beggar he's probably tied in but then you know within like a conversation with him she's like never mind he's not gonna get me into his web of crime yeah like this guy's not dastardly enough yeah um and 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 she and emerson entertain thoughts throughout the book about maybe he is the master criminal. Um, mm-hmm. But that's also fairly quickly dispelled. Yes. And in talking about the, like how strong the characteristics are for these, um, how, how they're written. One thing I do enjoy about the Amelia Emerson relationship is that they are a desperately devoted romantic couple, but they also have, um, the same character flaws that make them butt up against each other so often. Like they both are so, so arrogant and so stubborn um, that they get into arguments that feel um, valid and not like forced to create tension. But at the same time, you know, even as they're having the argument, they, they this isn't like a real argument. Like they love each other so much. It doesn't really matter. And, and, and they also find the other ones like self-confidence, a little bit of uh, endearing. Like they're so confident that they're right. That when they have a disagreement, it's kind of like, it's cute that you think that. And I'm going to let you keep thinking it because I know what's really going on. Mm-hmm. And I'm going to be really happy when it proves that I'm right. <laughs> yeah. And they, um, they're always, because they also in their conversations, they don't reveal everything to each other about what they think of the situation. And so they have arguments about whether or not they knew something the whole time, you know? So Amelia keeps noting, like, I'm sure that Emerson has not realized that Edith is, is the, the girl we met in Cairo. I, I'm sure that he is being taken in by her, uh, her subterfuge. And then Emerson insists that he knew the whole time, but, (laughs) they never made a point of determining whether or not he did before it was revealed that he definitely did know because somebody told him. Well, when he, when he says I knew the whole time, I can't remember exactly what it is, but then he kind of like reprimands Amelia for not revealing something. And she's like, well, I knew you knew. And then he can't (laughs) like, he can't argue it. He can't say anything about it. He's like, I knew as well. And Um, I knew you knew. So I didn't need to tell you. (laughs) Yeah. And so there's like this frustration of, not speaking to each other and they hide the fact that they're keeping secrets from each other by saying, but of course we're so in sync that we don't need to speak of it, but really they're also just trying to keep secrets of each because they're, they are trying to one up each other in these processes. Oh yeah. Like the, they're both uh, supremely proud of themselves individually, but they're also proud of the other one as, as their partner. Right. Uh, so there's this weird yeah. of one upmanship slash kind of, uh, I, I will also take some pleasure whenever you're right, because you're, you're my husband or you're my wife. 
yeah like they um i think the the dynamic to it would would be almost and this goes back to the the first book really where they have very high opinions of themselves and then feel completely committed to each other it's it's sort of this like well i know i'm great and thank goodness you are worthy of me right but you know i wouldn't settle for anyone less worthy but then you also get the um interesting moment when the master criminal confesses that he is madly in love with amelia and she's like you're joking because no one loves me except for emerson like i've never been an object (laughs) of affection in that way like i know i like the description is that you know she's she's fair but you know not anything special like in terms of her appearance like this isn't one of the protagonists who's like the perfect physical specimen or anything like that and and she's in the first book she was kind of like resigned to a life of spinsterhood basically um and and was making like deciding to go out into the world because you know i'm gonna go enjoy myself (laughs) if i'm not going to get married i'm i'm not of a social status or a physical uh, physically attractive enough that i i think i'm gonna get a long-term romantic partner so i'm just gonna go out and have adventures by myself along the way she happens to be emerson and they are a perfect match for each other um but when the master criminal says i love you she's like well no because only emerson sees me that way yeah it's one of the um I think I think really deftly executed um, deficiencies in her character. I think this is something that um, Elizabeth Peters, I'll use the the, the pseudonym um, Elizabeth Peters does really well in these novels is say, look, reader, like you're going to see these characters. Incorrectly think of things, but it's a very real thing for people to get wrong. And so that's just part of the character. And so Amelia doesn't think that anyone's ever attracted to her except Emerson. And Emerson is constantly jealous of attention she gets from other people because people do pay her attention. Mm-hmm. And she just doesn't think that it is anything. She doesn't think highly of herself in that particular way. And she's she's and it's not that she thinks that Emerson doesn't love her. Right. She's totally confident in that. But she has no confidence in in anyone else. Um paying her those kinds of attentions in a sincere way. Yeah. When we say and she, Emerson's constantly jealous about it. Mm-hmm. When we say she thinks highly of herself, it is of her intellectual skills, like her, her ability to uh, see the big picture and, and see details simultaneously and put those together in a way that lets her uh, solve mysteries, but also be an expert archeologist, um, you know, and do archeology span in the proper way. That's where her pride is um, and her confidence that she is the one that is uh, seeing things as they really are. Um, not a, a sense of pride of like, I am the most attractive uh, sought after woman in Egypt because I'm here. Yeah. Um, and, and and so it's interesting that it comes into play so much throughout the books um, and, and through this book in particular, because you have Sethos, you know, madly, wildly um, expressing his, his devotion to her. And she's like, I don't think I believe this. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, there's this. Uh, um, and and, and she's so on that front. But if anyone like praised her archaeology skills, she'd be like, yes, yes you are correct. You're like, of course. Yes, I know. <laughs> and and on this one. Yeah. With this romantic attention, she's like, nobody pays me romantic attention except Emerson. And she's it, like, it's it's to the point of dismissing it rather than rejecting it. Mm-hmm. Um. Um, which I think is an interesting dynamic in her character. 
so should we talk a little bit about Ramses as well, uh, who is coming in as a character I, in this one, right? So, uh, obviously, they weren't um, married in the first he book. Is in the previous book. Yeah. Uh, yeah, they, they got married. He, he's mentioned in the second book. He's on their adventure in the previous one, um, but not a huge factor. And this is when it's like, okay, Ramses is, is part of these stories now, and he is going to do some crazy stuff. Yes, and it is um, a lot of times like the idea of a precocious child in uh, TV shows or fiction or introducing a precocious child uh, into an ongoing series is often uh, dismissed as like a jumping the shark moment where like, oh, they're they're just casting about and trying to figure out how to do this. Um, he is integral to the part, uh, plot, um, but like you said, this is maybe where we have to suspend our disbelief uh, the most in, in terms of... Uh, I think he's eight. Is that right? He's eight years old in this one. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. The the vocabulary that he has, um, some of the physical uh, things that he does, not in terms of like strength, but just like how willing he is to throw himself into into danger and also then to escape real danger is you know, bordering on superhuman in terms of escaping actual physical damage and harm. Uh, <laughs> so so yeah. he is kind of that super child um, that is often, I, I think, frustrating for fans of longer range ones. He didn't bother me, like I said, once you accept that, okay, this is just what this is in this particular story um, that that we're going to have well, and I a think, child of this level. Um, I think part of it can come from the pacing of the books. I mean, if there's, there's I think, 20 or so um, novels in the Amelia Peabody series, which is, which is a lot of books. Mm-hmm. Um, and they progress year to year and the characters uh, in particular, you know, Ramses is aging and growing up. And some of the books are um, just one year to the next. And so it's just one year of, of growth and development. Um, I think the, the next novel is probably the closest in um, relation and it's, it's less than a full year. Um, the next one actually takes place in, in England. Um, they're oh. at the, the, you know, Egyptian museum in, in London a lot. Um, and that's super interesting, but, um, but I'm like eight books or nine books in. And by that point, he's, he's 17 years old, you know? And, and so you point, have these rapid growth. You don't, you don't, you're not stuck with a precocious kid. Mm-hmm. You, you end up with a teenager. And so it's like, yeah. okay, precocious kid for one or two books. Yeah. And then it's a totally different thing. And a teenager who was like as informed about Egyptology as he is as an eight year old, that doesn't really, you know, I'm not batting an eye at that. Uh, it is a little catch in this one, uh, but one that, you know, well, you, you can get past pretty quickly. And um, how would you describe him besides just, you know, the precocious child genius? What what else do we have going on with Ramses here? I mean, I mean, I love Ramses. He's one of my favorite characters. Um, they... <laughs> In some of the other books, Amelia is constantly talking about his propensity for loquacity. Um, and so he is always explaining things in the least succinct fashion. And and they constantly cut him off. Too. Well, it's not not it, it's not that he's providing too much detail. It is that he is using 15 words where one would suffice and 15 three syllable words. <laughs> You know, where one would suffice. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's like, it's like I was endeavoring to get to that point. <laughs> um, yeah. And and they're constantly... Yeah. He's uh, flipping through the thesaurus and wants to use every word that he has discovered. Yeah. Um, and I, I think one thing, again, another of those, like, character faults that I... 
it's frustrating, but not in a way that makes me hate the main characters. Sometimes you see character faults and you're just like, oh my gosh, this is the worst. Um, but like Emerson and Amelia cut Ramsey's off quite a bit before he actually gets to his point when you can tell that the point he is leading to is actually going to be very relevant and they wish that they had hurt him, right? He has arguments that he's trying to get into the conversation early on that would save time when you see like at the end of the book, you know, he was trying to point out that he suspected Gregson of being an imposter very early on, you know, at the first hearing of him, but they kept cutting him off. And Ramsey's as, as a tool for the story is interesting because um, he provides just enough information that the reader needs to kind of start putting stuff together. Um, But it doesn't really help us solve the mystery per se. It just, in some ways it helps us know that Amelia, like what he really adds helps us know that Amelia is going to be okay. Like when she gets kidnapped by uh, the master criminal, we can kind of say, well, they they actually only have to search this. What was it? Like a three mile radius? I think square <laughs> that, mile. That he's already determined the master criminal or yeah, square mile that the master uh, criminal has determined. So when she sends out her signal, it's like, they're going to find her. Uh, and, and so it's more of, um, uh, I, I guess confidence for the reader that that before long Emerson's going to be breaking down the door, which Emerson very thoroughly breaks down that door <laughs> to, to get in to Peabody. Yeah, and so you have um, this factor. You know, Ramses is in this book. I think almost less of a character and more like a factor in the story. You know, he is being part of the story, but he's not a, a full on character. I mean, most of his adventurous portions take place away from camp and outside the narrative. You know, there's a lot of times where he is brought back to camp and then you learn about something that he's been doing. And, and so he is um, an element of this. And then in later stories, they, they come up with a narrative device for him to um, tell his side of the story, right? They start pulling elements from, from his journals um, just a little bit so that you can fill in some of the space where it's like Ramses is, is doing his own thing in these stories, right? He's not just, part of the team he is his own agent um on the team oh that's interesting i didn't know they did that because again these are are being presented as like edited memoirs from her journals years later yeah and um so in one of the later books as as i've only seen it in one book so far um they they call it an additional manuscript that they assume was written by ramses um but it's telling portions of oh, his story okay. um, in his voice, but there's only a handful of them. So it's not like it it's shifting narrators a bunch. It's saying, let's bring in some context from, from this other account. Um, and they, they treat it like, like, um, like, uh, like historical papers, historical document papers. Oh, okay. That, that's a fun way to, to work with it. Um, now Emerson, the other character that we, we said we'd be talking about, um, I, I know we've, we've mentioned several times, uh, aspects of him and his, particularly in terms of his relationship, uh, with, with, with Peabody. Um, but I guess more than like, who is he as a character? Do you have a favorite moment for Emerson in this, in this novel? Um, Emerson is prone to, I think some really great moments of, um, hypocrisy. In, in a charming way, like when he shouts that he never shouts. You know, he, he's, yes. you know, constantly saying things like that. I'm always subtle. And he, he's a bull in a china shop uh, in in every way. <laughs> right. Yes. You know, he's uh, like. I, <laughs> in imagining him, I almost feel like 
he, he's kind of like a Gandalf in a hobbit house uh, constantly. Like, the world isn't big enough for him. He is bigger than the world around him, and he's kind of bumbling and and smashing into stuff because of that. Um, <laughs> mm-hmm. And, I mean, that's not really what we have. It's just he feels bigger than the space that, that he is in um, all the time in terms of his energy, in terms of exuberance, in terms of uh, his physicality and the way that he moves through the world, which then leads to, for me, the favorite moment was when he burst through uh, the door and, and uh, Amelia's just like he's coming <laughs> here he is yeah um, uh, after she's been kidnapped yeah there's um, I'm trying to think like I know there's examples of uh, like this type of physicality in 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 books and movies and the only like my best example that I'm coming up with in my head is from a Studio Ghibli film uh, is Castle in the Sky and there's a moment where two big guys face off in the street and they just have a flexing composition and they puff out their chests until their shirts tear. I'm like, that's Emerson. <laughs> you know, like he will puff out his yeah. chest until his shirt tears if it's to prove his point and to to quell his opponent. Yeah, I, I, th- I think that's good. Uh, you know, a, a good point of reference uh, for for who this is. Um well, and, and don't the uh, like he he gets the same Egyptian crew and they're so loyal to him to come help with his digs every year that he comes back. But don't they call him the father of curses? Yes. <laughs> Is that <laughs> because he's uh, exuberant in his speech? <laughs> but but in, in the same way that uh, the book keeps it very, very chaste in terms of what is actually on the page his his role as father of curses is largely implied and, and we don't get <laughs> the, you know the swearing yeah um, um uh it's, it's filling out and and some of that comes from the interactions with um with ramses or they're constantly apologizing for swearing in front of women um and so they keep their language in check they're they're always about to say a worse word and they catch themselves and and reduce it in severity and something that we didn't get in this book that is is kind of a broad characteristic of Emerson is he has a very theatrical side. Um, he loves to perform fake exorcisms to help his camp stay calm, right? If they think a tomb is haunted, he will dress up and he will throw things in the fire and he will do a, a fake exorcism to, to cleanse the tomb um, so that his workers will feel calm and, and continue to work for him. And he does that... Um, because in in part because he loves it he loves being theatrical and um and doing all the the big broad actions he he wants to be i mean part of him is there's a need for attention right he he uh well there's a mix there because he does like to be the center of attention when he feels uh like when he's able to do the performance part but then like anytime the tur- tourists come which i guess the excavations could also become tourist sites uh back in the day in egypt and you'd have these bored europeans that were <laughs> coming through and would want to see like that is a very he does not want to be in that moment he does not want to be performing for european tourists at all he doesn't want that attention because it's it's a distraction from his professional life whereas i guess uh doing the exorcism is like a step towards completing the professional role that he really wants to do but he doesn't mind uh being at the center of attention in this process yeah i think um i think you're right that there is sort of a, a conflict there like there he wants all of the attention but he wants it very much on his terms and so if he is um you know performing i think that's the right if he's performing then then he wants it if he's working he doesn't want it if he is um 
presenting the the conclusion to the case and he's announcing who the murderer is, he wants lots of attention. If he is investigating the murder, he wants no attention. You know, if he's at a party and he doesn't want to be asked what he's thinking. Yes. Yeah. And at, and if at he's all. at a party he's, with, until he's ready to say it. Yeah. When he's at a party with Amelia, he doesn't really want attention. It's like we're very private people, except when we're not. And somehow in all of that, it doesn't feel contradictory. Like, I, I think it's presented very well um, that e- even within the character, those can feel like contradictions, but that can be some of the best sources of tension in a story and conflict in a story. And also like re- uh, revelations about a character can come through um, what feels hip- hypocritical, but think about anyone, you know, or think about yourself and there are parts of you that are, <laughs> that are hypocritical. And so it, it can actually add, um, to the humanity uh, of of a character to have some of those points that feel like uh, you know they'd be rubbing together internally on this uh, within the same character, um, but really that that's you know true to human nature. And I don't know where the line is in in fiction where that becomes problematic, and you say, well, that's too contradictory. This this character doesn't make sense to me, or it's just the right amount that it, it completely works. And I think it works within Emerson. It hasn't crossed that line. Yeah, I think um, I think that's definitely accurate in in describing him. You know, you've got these conflicts and and you've got, you know, somebody who thinks they are one way, but they are definitely not that way. And so there's that like that willful self-deception coming into play. But at the same time, like he does know his stuff, like he's not a complete bumbling idiot or anything like that. Like he's very savvy. He he knows who his friends are and he's right about that. He never makes a mistake about people. but he makes mistakes about who he is all the time. Yeah. And it, I, I think it's very similar to what we were saying about Amelia. Maybe we didn't quite land in the same words, but like uh, her pride and her self-confidence uh, is, could be viewed as contradictory when she can't believe that the master criminal is interested in her when, when she's so sure that she is the best uh, in these other facets or aspects uh, or roles that she has. Uh, but she, she is like, oh, honestly seems baffled that the master criminal is romantically interested in her. She's like, what is happening here? Uh, it, it doesn't come across as like problematic writing or our poor writing. That is like too contradictory. It's like, no, oh, that, that works. Uh, with it, within one person that can con- contain that level of of contradiction uh and so somewhere in that spectrum of uh too contradictory or too samey is can feel like uh bad writing either like paper thin writing or or just uh some poor choices in character development and somewhere in the middle is that right mix and i, I think elizabeth peters is doing a good job of landing there with these two yeah and i think um going back to the the amelia situation like i'm trying to think you know why does that turn out to be really satisfying for her to have that um that personal misconception you know that misunderstanding of of who she is to other people and like i can't i can't figure out exactly why it is um satisfying and acceptable for her whereas you could see a different character doing the same thing. And you're just like, Oh, come on. Like you've got, you've got to be smarter than this. You've got to be able to see this about yourself. And with Amelia, it's sort of like, all right, like this is one of her blind spots, but it's like, she's going to have some. Um, And you like, you're able to shrug Mm -hmm. it off in a way where with other characters, you're just like, this is so unrealistic. And with Amelia, you're like, I mean, that's, that's just how she is. You know, she doesn't get it. (laughs) And this is one of the things she doesn't get. So yeah, without putting, being able to put our finger exactly on what it is in in the tone of the writing or the the presentation within this novel, these characters uh, that 
that makes that so successful. I think it's one reason why we enjoy the these these novels is is that level of characterization that we're getting. Yeah, it's it's handled just really really nicely in a way. Like I said, that you've got all these these flaws in the characters. Um, uh, and like like Emerson's filled with jealousy. Like that would typically be considered a flaw. Um, even though Amelia is so oblivious to that fact that she doesn't even address it. She doesn't even try to make him feel that he doesn't need to be jealous. Right. That's how little she considers it mm-hmm. a threat that, that there's romantic interest in her. Um, and so Emerson's got this, this jealous edge to him throughout this book. Um, and, and it, like, it comes out as like, Oh, well that's, that's good characterization. Whereas in some cases you look at something like that and you're like, man, this character, like, it's out of nowhere or they suck or, you know, they're just so frustrating and things like that. Um, I want to briefly hit on, on some other bonus characters before, before we wrap up, I do want to see if we can talk briefly about um, Donald Enid and Sethos um, because they have solid okay. characterization as well. Yeah. So, so Donald is the good brother, right? I'm getting that correct. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Nemo, Nemo, the good brother, Donald. Right. Uh, and yeah, like, uh, how how can we summarize him? Like he's done, he's been so noble. He has ruined his life, right? Is, yeah, is where we find him at the beginning. And it's not couched as like appropriately noble. It's like, no, he's kind of dumb. And that made like, he did noble things kind of in a dumb way. Like he's, he is not the sharpest tool in the shed, but he is a positive force. He is noble. He would try to help people, but that has, done damage to his to his livelihood and his well-being and he's not going to complain about it because he's like overly romanticized the nobility of it to some degree uh-huh yes and, and, well and speaking of like naively noble let's talk about enid real quick <laughs> because she can get painted with the same brush mm-hmm. where uh she, she wants to help uh donald so much uh, that she also nearly ruins her life and gets accused of murder. Yeah, um, so she is in Egypt trying to look for him so that she can... Um, so so Donald took the fall for Ronald. Enid goes to Egypt to find Donald to, to help save him. And then Ronald follows her um, to make sure that doesn't happen, basically. But Enid gets herself into so much trouble in Egypt trying to save Donald that it's just a whole mess. Yeah, and uh, like she has these good intentions, but she has no. She's so naive about how to enact her or achieve her goals that she is very easily taken advantage of. Um, and if she hadn't landed with Amelia after the murder, like the next person, if they'd been unsavory in any way, would have taken complete advantage of her. <laughs> in the same way that, um, oh, who's the person who dies at the beginning? What's his name? Uh, Kalenachev. Yeah, Kalenachev had been taking advantage of her, you know, before. Yeah, like both, um, and so like both Donald and Enid are good people, but they need someone with more common sense to kind of point to them where to go, I think is is what I get from them. Yes, I, I think um, and, and that's where like naive nobility comes into play. It, it is that that naive. They're really young. They don't really know what's going on. Um, you know, they like they have been young and fairly sheltered because they're from rich British families. Um, and so they don't quite know how to handle things, but they also don't quite know that they don't know how to handle things. 
Well, and even Donald, like, uh, so often you get, like, the down on the luck, the like, the person who, you know, had been on the good side but is now a petty criminal and, and you know, a beggar on the streets scraping to get by. They're, like, gaining, um, you know, uh, street smarts and, and uh, you know, gaining skills. You don't feel like Donald has really gained a whole lot in his fall from grace. <laughs> He's still... No, he, like... <laughs> He had he he had what he currently has as far as yeah. skills. Uh-huh. <laughs> but but you, and, uh, somehow you do still root for them in, in all their charming uh, naivete there. You, you, you're happy to see them get together at the end. <laughs> yes. Um, OK, so what about Sethos? This is this is the first book where we really like, I mean. He's introduced in the previous book to some degree, and then this is the book where they kind of lay him out. It's like, okay, this is this is the Moriarty to the Emersons. Well, and so much of who he is for the bulk of the book is supposition from Amelia's point of view. Um, like you even get Emerson almost swatting away the idea that he even exists, even though we find out that he was he, you know, he, well, at least Emerson tells Peabody later on. I do. Um, and her ver- version of him is very much, like you said, a, a Moriarty figure, like the, the center of a massive web of conspiracy. Uh, they, they, they say his eyes are everywhere. Uh, his servants would die before betray him uh, to, to, to try and even speak of him uh, is to, to flirt with death. It's like the, what we get all the way through. And then when we finally see him, he's kind of this hopeless romantic <laughs> that, uh, that, yeah. that is dealing with unrequited love and he doesn't know what to do about it because he's been able to maintain control of every other aspect of his life. Um, and, and like through some level of force of will and determination, take control out of chaos in, in everywhere else. But his obsession, his romantic obsession uh, is not requited. And his goal seems to be, I'm going to wear you down through love and kindness. Uh, and eventually you will love me the way I love you, um, which obviously <laughs> is not going to work. <laughs> You know, as I kidnap you, it will be with the goal of giving you love and kindness. I'm, I, you know, nothing untoward will happen to you after I've kidnapped you from your husband and child. <laughs> yeah, and and he has, um, and he like they they do illustrate that he is relatively unstable to some degree, right? Like he is outraged every time she mentions Emerson. And which she constantly mentions Emerson when she's talking to the master criminal. And he's just like, Emerson, again, again, Emerson, stop saying his name. And, um, and it's and not he's, and he's really just getting so frustrated. Up. Like, this is not a scheme on her part to keep him off balance. It's just she can't could complete, you know, five thoughts without Emerson being in one of them. And and so it's yeah, natural. he's just such a part of her yeah. and her life and her thought process. Mm hmm. It's natural that she um, makes offhand uh, references, and it's infuriating to the master criminal. Um, and and he also hates Ramses, <laughs> like this eight year old child. He's just like, man, that kid. I hate that kid. <laughs> you know, and it's it's not like I just want to kill that kid. It's it's just like this complete like this kid is so much trouble for me. <laughs> Yeah, uh, just everywhere I don't want him to be, I find him. I, and everywhere I think I have stopped him from being able to get to, he gets into, which Amelia uh, is like, I, I understand, because I have to, like, phrase my instructions. He'll be so obedient to my instructions, but if there's a loophole, yes. he finds it and exploits it. He will find it. it. 
yeah it's yeah, so, it's, like, uh, yeah so she has this like commiseration yes yeah so she she commiserates with him he's like i get it that is frustrating ramsey's man like he's tough huh <laughs> and so they have this kind of uh commiseration moment um in, in that and i it does remind me of um an, a favorite moment for um ramsey's is they are trying to it seems like you know the entire family is under attack and somebody's pointing that out. He's like, well, that's not that unusual for us. Emerson's saying, you know, that's not that crazy for us. You know, we, we have several enemies. I'd be surprised if somebody weren't trying to attack us. They're like, but this seems like a lot. It's like, well, let me check Ramsey's. Are you currently threatening any dastardly criminals? And Ramsey says to the best of my knowledge. Nope. Yes. Or no, no, Papa. (laughs) (laughs) You know, it's like Ramsey's could be threatening any number of criminals. We are not sure, so we have to double check with him. Yes. And stop him from doing his verbal loopholes that he loves to write for himself. <laughs> mm-hmm. Well, Andrew, do you have any final thoughts about the Lion in the Valley? I've been thinking about um a little bit about like the whole series and and just the the tone and um the appeal of a character like Amelia. And I think one of the things that I've nailed down, um, and it goes back mostly to to the first book but we have a lot of experience in narrative with newcomers uh joining an established world and that's what amelia is in the first book she is a a newcomer to egyptology and she shows up you know just the same way that you know harry potter is the newcomer to the wizarding world or or um or Jean Grey or Kitty Pride was introduced as a newcomer to the X-Men, right? They become your, your audience surrogate introduction to the world. And I think one of the things that appeals to me and, and seems so unique about the series is that she walks in with the intention of achieving something in that world instead of being completely overwhelmed by it that you see in so many of those audience surrogate characters. And I think that's really fascinating. You know, she walks in and she says, I am going to figure things out in this world. And, and she's bringing the audience into that tone instead of really being on the back foot constantly. Um, I'm trying to think if I've ever seen something like that um, as, as you know, that, that audience surrogate walking into unknown territory, but I really like it. (laughs) Yeah. There's a brashness to her that, that is, is appealing Um, in the way that a character can be lovable to, to read about or watch on screen, but maybe would be overwhelming in your life. Uh, I feel both Emerson and Amelia would fall into that category. <laughs> um, but, but very appealing to, to like go and visit their adventures uh, in fiction. Uh, and by, by this point, you know, in book four, it's like, it's not just that she goes in with that brash goal of, of making a mark in that world. Like she is that world as much as Emerson is like, like she is known. Uh, she, she is part of the establishment uh, in Egyptology um uh, by 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 this point in the series which you know those other examples you gave like uh uh gene gray or kitty pride like they become part of the 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 tapestry of of x-men pretty quickly and and uh, the series goes on for so long that you know you you constantly are getting the new uh new characters that are coming in and they look up to characters who once had that role uh in the series um and, and so i mean at this point maybe you could say uh ramses is is going to be the you know the one that's looking up to his parents and and you know entering that world uh a bit that is very much they they are um you know a part of the establishment 
That wraps up this episode, listeners. Thank you for joining us. For show notes and links to all the other great Dueling Genre shows, you can go to DuelingGenre.com. Also, please subscribe to the Protagonist Podcast in your podcast app of choice. Please leave us a review. That really helps us out. We'd like to thank Nick English, who designed our logo, and Scott Tofty, who composed our theme music. If you enjoyed this episode, you might want to go check out episode number 229, which was Crocodile and Sandbank, uh, Sandbank, in which we talked about the first Amelia Peabody novel. You can reach us by emailing feedback at protagonistpodcast.com or us on Twitter. You can follow at protagonistpod or at jadarowski. Our producer, Andrew, is at his minute and our Facebook fan page is facebook.com slash protagonistpodcast. Thank you again for listening and we'll be back next week to discuss another great character in a great story. So long. I think we're getting a lag i think so <laughs> okay <laughs> just